The following is brought to you by Canyon Ridge Church at Tacoma. For additional podcasts or information on service times and upcoming events, please visit us online at www.explorecrc.com. My name is John. If you don't know me, I'm also part of the church staff, and we are in our series on the pastoral epistles. And today we're looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2. We have gone past chapter 1 finally, and so we'll try and tackle the first seven verses of chapter 2 this morning. And this passage, this text, is about praying for the lost. The title that I've given my text today is exactly that, praying for the lost. And I'm hoping that that doesn't offend you. Uh, The word lost can carry some negative connotation to it. It means for some people that we know where we are and where we're going and you don't. The implication is that if you don't yet know Christ, if you're not a Christian yet, then you're lost. Well... Who wants to be lost? (laughs) Who likes being told they're lost? Um, I, for one, abhor being told that I'm lost and or that I need to ask for directions. And so if you are here today and you find yourself in that position as one of the lost, then I hope that you will hear my heart this morning And that you will understand that I know how hard it can be to be in that category around others who are not lost and what that feels like. And so I hope you hear my heart in this this morning. Some people take the word being lost as in you're just so far gone, you're the bad of the bad. I mean, you are, you're lost. You are a bad person. Bad, bad, really bad. You're lost, you're gone. And so uh, we are not lost, we are better than you. You're bad, we're good. And so with those kinds of comparisons and those kinds of attitudes, Surely, nobody would want to be called lost. Nobody would like that. So let me try and just kind of sum it all up and explain it in a way that's not offensive to you, but rather challenges you. Everybody is going to hell. How about that? That just makes it fair? No, okay, I can do better than that. Nobody really knows how bad off they are until you become saved. It's this crazy thing that happens. It's almost as if you get in touch with this reality that you are being loved by somebody and you don't deserve it. I'll never forget the first time that I realized, I really got a hold of the Bible and the scripture and realized that God loved me. My response was, I just just began to weep. And I can remember I was crying so hard I could barely get the words out. And I was saying, I don't deserve this. I I don't deserve this. Not me. How can you love me? Obviously, I didn't love myself. 
and I didn't know how anyone else would want me or love me. And so it was very hard for me to grasp that concept that God would love me. And the other part to it is that this, when you become a follower of Christ and you start to learn about his love for you and you see that, you start this process, what we call sanctification. And sanctification is, is the process of becoming more and more like Christ, becoming more obedient to him and becoming Christian that he desires us to be, to walk how Jesus would have us walk. And that process is slow. It takes time. Uh, it takes a process to become the way that Christ wants us to be. And it's almost, well, it is, in fact, a lifelong process. Nobody arrives at that point until you are finally with Jesus up in heaven. And then you've arrived and there's no more need for growth. But all of the spiritual growth takes place right here. So let me just talk about one category of life to illustrate what I mean about our unworthiness, our need for God. Not all the categories. There's a ton of them that I could go through today and we'd be here all day long. And it would be easy to do that. But just taking one category, let me see if I can get you to see your need for God. And that's the area of faithfulness. Faithfulness. Let's look at all the ways that you and I are unfaithful. All right? You ready for this? This might get painful. First of all, you don't spend enough time with your children. You may spend some time with them. But you don't spend enough time with them, and if your kids are grown and gone now, you didn't spend enough time with them when they were younger. You were consumed with your own life and all of their needs and issues and stuff, so you, you didn't give your kids all that they needed. What did I do? Just cover up the wrong page. You don't pray for people like you should. Many times the Holy Spirit has brought to your mind or you've thought about how you need to pray for people and you don't do it. You almost never pray for the kinds of people that Paul just, we just read there in, in 1 Timothy 2, the types of people that he said we should pray for. You never pray for those kind of people. You don't volunteer like you should. You've thought about it many, many, many times and just opted instead for sports on TV. You aren't even close to being as generous as you should be. You are very, very comfortable, all of us, even though if you're at poverty level, you are rich compared to the rest of the world. So we're all very, very comfortable and none of us is as generous as we should be. You don't appreciate your wife like you should. You don't take the time to thank her and shower her with love and praise and bring her gifts and flowers and appreciate all that she has done for you all these years. You don't say thank you enough. You don't appreciate her enough. And 
you don't appreciate your husband for all that he's done and all the years that he woke up early and went to work and provided for the family and worked hard and fought the good fight. And you don't encourage him enough. You don't give him the praise that is due to him, that he needs, that he desires. You don't care for him the way he longs for you to care for him. You are very unfaithful in your marriage. Nor have you been a very good witness for Christ. There have been many, many, many times where there have been opportunities that God has put together to bring you in front of a person who needs to hear the gospel and the truth of the gospel, and you didn't say a word. You were a coward. You were afraid. You were afraid for your reputation and what other people might say about you, and so you were not the witness that God meant for you to be. You aren't as committed to your community group as you should be. You sign the covenant, you're going to be there every week, make it a high priority, and yet you miss half of them. You're unfaithful. You don't attend church faithfully. You come when it feels like it, when you're going to gum if you like it, or you don't have anything else for that day. It's raining, let's go to church. Attending church has been very unfaithful. You don't use 20-minute mornings like you should. You are unfaithful in that as well, and on doing some here and there, but not committed completely and fully and doing it every day as you should, as much time as you should. You don't honor God as you should. You are unfaithful. Are you feeling bad yet? For everything that I say about you, it's true of me. We are unfaithful. And I haven't even got to the bad things yet, have I? I'm just talking about the things that you failed to do. We haven't begun to talk about all the things you have done that you deserve punishment for. We haven't even gone to that category. And that is a massive category, right? Massive. We could come up with a thousand things today of things that you have done that are wrong. And it doesn't take the Bible to even see that stuff. It's just clear and obvious. You see it, we see it. You think we don't see it, but we see it. No, all I'm talking about is the things we simply neglect, which are sins as well. We call them the uh, unwitted sins, the sins that we commit without thinking. It wasn't deliberate. We just didn't do it. We didn't do the good that we were supposed to do. You see how easy it was for me to accuse you? So easy to accuse you and heap all this guilt and shame on you and you feel terrible like you have not lived up to what you should have. You have been incredibly unfaithful. Or maybe you say to yourself, well, I've been faithful in some of those. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I did good on a few of those. Or at least that's the lie you tell yourself 
excuses that you give as to all the reasons why you couldn't be faithful when you were supposed to. So you see, if we look there, we will find all the reasons why we ought to be condemned rather than commended. And all of this sounds so depressing. It sounds depressing and it's discouraging, and yet everything I said was true. It was true. Lord, help those people. You and I are unbelievably unfaithful to God, and yet he is so faithful to us. And that's what makes it so grotesque. I mean, I could understand our unfaithfulness if it was towards somebody who was unfaithful in return. Then we could say, yeah, they deserved it. But this is a person who has never failed you once, ever. Faithful all the time, continually reliable. The same yesterday as was today. He is there for you. And yet you, even though have received that great love and faithfulness, have returned the favor of unfaithfulness back to God. Why am I going through all this trouble to make us feel so bad? Because if you don't understand how lost you are, and I'm talking about all of us, if you don't understand how lost you are, how great your need was for salvation, then you will never be able to pray for those who are truly lost. You won't be able to do it. If you're not in touch with your own lostness, you will never get on your knees and cry out for those who are truly lost. Thing is, what's happened is we've forgotten how long it was. It was a long time ago when we were lost, and now we're saved. We've been saved for a long time, and so we forgot. We get up on Sunday morning, and we come to church automatically because that's what we do. We go to church. We arrive here. There might be some fighting and yelling on the way, but, you know, we make it here. We get in the front door. We find our assigned seat. We sit down. You know exactly what's going to happen next. You know the songs. You don't need to look up at the screens. You know the words to those songs. So you sing them. You know what's coming next. You know who I am. You know Andrew. You know what Andrew's going to say. You got it down, right? And so you've forgotten how uncomfortable that is the very first time. When you show up, you don't know what's going to happen. You've never been there before. You don't know if you're going to meet that weird Christian, you know, or if they're going to, you know, invite you over to their house on the first Sunday. Somebody's going to rush to you and ask you if you're a sinner. One thing I hated when I would attend churches is people would come up to me and say, are you new today? I always lied, no, 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 I've been here for a while. <laughs> you have this fear in your heart that at some point, somebody's going to introduce you to the pastor. 
And you think, oh, no. So in your mind, you're thinking through, you're standing there. Somebody brings the pastor over. This is our pastor. His name is John. He gave the talk today, and he knows all your sins. <laughs> or, hi, welcome to Canyon Ridge today. This is our pastor, and he's going to come to your house later on today for the test. <laughs> we have these fears of how church will be, but we've, we've forgotten how hard it is. That's why I love Amazing Grace. I heard a stupid pastor say one time that we should not sing Amazing Grace because it talks about how wretched we are and we're not wretched, we're saved, we're, we're saints. Come on, get a clue. You don't know what that means. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. You see... The greatness of our sin doesn't diminish the cross. It elevates the cross. It makes his love all that greater. That he knew all of my junk and he still said, I want you. It's amazing. Amazing love. So we cannot become too comfortable, Canyon Ridge. We no longer understand what it's like to be lost. If you are going to become comfortable at CRC, let me give you this little tidbit. If, if you're a guest today, here's something you really got to know. If you're going to hang out here at all for any amount of time, you're going to need to know this. This is what we believe, what we practice. It's not just a belief. It's what we do. And this is it. You ready? At the foot of the cross, we are all equal. You're not better than us, and we're not better than you. You're not worse than us, and we're not worse than you. When we stand before Christ, we are on level ground, equal. We all need salvation equally. Well, how can that be true? How can I say that? Verse 4. God desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so God's heart, his desire is that every person on the earth would know the truth and be saved. Every human being has value to God. So that explains... My title, Prayer for the Lost. That's what this text is about. Let's get into it. He says, first of all, verse 1, first of all, what does it mean when a text says, first of all, then? What does that mean? You see that in the Bible? It means, it's telling you right there, bold English, hey, guess what? I'm talking about what I previously said. So you got to go back to chapter 1 again, because he's saying, First of all, so based on what I've just told you in chapter 1, I'm now giving you this in chapter 2. You see, the two are connected together. 
So he's referring to what he previously said in chapter 1. And what did he say? We spent three weeks going over what he said in the last three verses. And what is it about? It's about spiritual warfare. So he's saying to us here in this chapter, what I'm about to say to you is based on the foundation of spiritual warfare. So now that you know all about spiritual warfare, this is the first thing you should do. You should pray. Pray. Keep that in mind. Prayer. Remember, we cross-reference all of this with Ephesians because Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus. So those are connected there. All right. And he's saying that there is a spiritual war happening all around us all the time. And the first thing you do now that you know that you're in warfare, the first thing that you do is you pray. And then he uses four words to describe the kind of prayer that we should pray for the lost. We're praying for the lost here. That's the emphasis of it. That's why he goes right into kings and people in authority. That's his emphasis. What is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is that we would... Go out into the whole world and preach the gospel, right? That's the mission of the church. It hasn't changed in thousands of years. That's what the church is about. And so that's where Paul begins. It begins with evangelism. This is where we need to start. We must begin to pray for the world and our neighbors and the people that we know. Lost people all around us. That's the mission of the church, to win the world. And Paul says that you do it by praying for them. If you can't pray for them first, how are you in the world going to be a witness to them? That's what the church must do. The church must always keep that as the first priority. If it doesn't, then we get all messed up and confused. And we start to think, well, that it's all about us. But it's not. It's about them. So he says, you, should, you must pray for the lost. If the objective of the church from God's perspective was fellowship, well, then we clap our hands, we're done, let's go to heaven because we got great fellowship here. Or if the mission of the church was uh, knowing the scriptures, well, we're done, let's go off to heaven because we study the scriptures, we know the scriptures, we've got that. But see, the mission of the church is reaching every single person with the gospel. Have we done that? No. No, in fact, there's a lot of work to be done, right? Tons of work to be done. That's the mission of the church and so he uses four words to describe this. Why? All four of these words basically mean the same thing. They're all about prayer. They're all words for prayer. So he could have said, first of all, then, I urge you to make prayer for all men. He could have said it like that, but he didn't. He used four different words for prayer all together in a string for emphasis, I believe. He wants to hammer this point home. This is important stuff here. Pay attention, Timothy. Continually ask God, Timothy, through intercession, through prayer, thanksgiving, 
Pray, pray, pray for the lost. So what does it mean to prayer or pray in or with supplication? Because we don't use this word in our culture, you've got to define it. I mean, raise your hand if you used the word supplication this last week, last year, last five years. One, two, two people. Supplication, it's the kind of word that brings with it a sense of urgency, desperation. It's similar to begging. It's like the incredibly, incredibly poor man. He's like the bottom of the barrel, doesn't own anything. He's homeless. He's completely broke. The epitome of poverty. And he's asking a billionaire for help. That's the comparison there of supplication. It is not one poor man asking of another poor man to share his resources. That's not what it, it's the opposite of that. It's that I'm praying as if I have nothing to someone who has everything. That's what supplication is. It's out of my great need. I'm coming to someone with great resources. That's supplication prayer. When you and I pray, when we pray, it literally moves the hand of God. I don't know about you, but that's... We pray to the same God that Moses did. That Joshua prayed to. Peter, Paul, James, Luke. They all prayed to the same Jesus that we're praying to. And that's powerful. The whole, all of eternity hangs in the balance with people. The next word he uses is just a general word for prayer. It's used throughout the Bible. It just means prayer. But it is only a word that is used in prayer to God. It's focused to God the Father. Just as when the disciples went to Jesus and they said, teach us how to pray. And he said, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven. So Jesus said we should come to the Father in prayer. And of course, that was Mind-blowing for them when they heard it the very first time. And that's what the same word that Paul is using here. God our Father. The third word he uses is intercession. This is an interesting word to use for prayer. It's a powerful word. Catch this. This word intercession carries with it the, the, the idea of intimacy. Intimacy. This means that I am intimately involved. The exact definition would be like this. Intercession is to fall in with a person. That's what it means. And so if you find yourself in big, big trouble and you need an attorney and you don't know any, what are you going to do? 
Well, you call your friends and say, do you know a good attorney? Or you may just end up with the internet and you try and find an attorney. Then you go to that guy and you pay him everything you have. (laughs) And then he needs more. But you pay this attorney, somebody you've never met before and you don't even know. But you are in big, big trouble and you need help. You need an advocate. Well, the word for intercession doesn't carry, it it carries the concept of advocacy, but not from somebody I just met. More like the attorney that I hire is my dad. My father is a well-known attorney, has his own firm of 25 other attorneys. He's an incredible attorney, and my dad is my attorney. Or my mom or my brother. It's that intimate relationship that I am intimate with you. I know you. I'm family, and I'm standing for you. And Paul says when we should pray for the lost... We pray with intercession, standing in the gap as though we were a family member. It's that intimate. It's empathy. It's I care about you prayer. And the last one is thanksgiving. And this is real simple. It's what it says. It's thanking God for people. When do you thank God for someone? You thank God for someone when you love them, when you Appreciate them when you think, I like this person. I need this person in my life. I thank God for you. That's the kind of thanksgiving prayer. I appreciate you. Now, when I describe these four words, these four words that Paul is saying to Timothy, that you must pray for lost people this way must have been overwhelming because what they know is true, we know is true, is we don't pray that way. We don't pray that way. Most of us don't even pray for the lost at all anyway. But if we do, we certainly don't pray this way. Why? Why are we not praying this way? Because just quite simply, it's not in our hearts. We don't care. We don't care enough to pray that way. Maybe we've lost our sense of lostness. Maybe we have all these excuses. It doesn't really matter, does it? Because the end result is that our prayers are very ineffective. They don't move the heart of God because we don't pray with supplication, with prayers, intercession, or thanksgiving. So we must start to develop these qualities. We have to. We have to begin to develop these qualities if we're going to have any kind of success in praying for our community. Notice what he said at the end of verse 1. I love this. This is the heart of the gospel right here being unfolded for us. These prayers of supplication and prayer and intercession and thanksgiving are to be made on behalf of... All people. Now you let that sink in because that's absolutely terrifying. 
It's terrifying. Every one of us in this room have people we refuse to pray for. You think about it, you do. You do. You think about it. But to Paul, there's no exclusivity. There's no group that is elevated above another group. We are all in need together in one in humanity. As God desires that all be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Do you know heaven is going to be the most diverse gathering the world has ever seen? In heaven, it's going to be every color of skin imaginable. Every kind of hair and bald in heaven. Fat people, skinny people, tall people, all kinds of people. People with tons of markings all over their bodies. Actually, nobody will be wearing clothes in heaven. So It's true. At least not earthly clothes. He says we are to pray for all kinds of people. Who was the emperor at the time Paul wrote this? Well, we know that it was the emperor Nero. And if you study history, then you know that Nero, of all the pharaohs and kings and Emperors, Nero was the Hitler of their day. He was their Adolf Hitler. Imagine you were living in England during the height of World War II. And I said to you, we must pray for Adolf Hitler. No. 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 That's how they took it. Nero? No, no, no. I'll pray for all these other people. Every day I'll commit to it all. I'll lift them up in prayer, but not him. Paul says, no, no, you don't see. You don't see that the cross was for Everyone. The cross was for all kinds of people. No one is unsavable. No one is unsavable. Paul's listeners would have felt that with the same disgust that we do. But what does that say about us? It says a whole lot more about us than it does about the gospel. And let me clarify, when we say pray for people in authority, we're not to pray that they are assassinated. (laughs) We're to pray specifically for their salvation. That's what we're praying for. So let me finalize this whole section with this last thought. And this is important. A lot of Christians miss this. They fail when it comes to this. And this is the biggest caveat there is. All right? This is the biggest contingency of prayer. 
And I could show you a lot of verses that back this up. And it's simply this. God cares about what is in your heart when you're praying to him. It matters to him. You cannot have a heart full of anger and hate and rage for one person while at the same time praying for God to bless this other person. James calls that double-minded. And he says, you're unstable in all your ways. Let not that man to expect to receive anything from God. Jesus taught, if you have ought with your brother, get it right with your brother, then go to the place of prayer. Because you're a hypocrite if you don't. You know the Pharisees, they love to pray in public. They love to be seen praying. So they're the the guy on the elevator, you know. That guy. And they love to be seen and to be thought of, oh, he's so spiritual. But Jesus said inside their heart was just wicked, full of evil. God rejects their prayers. So God wants us to have a heart like this for our community. And I don't know how we can get there unless we first get in touch with our own sense of need for salvation. When we finally get to the place where we realize how badly we need Christ, then I think we will be in the right position to begin to pray for our brothers and sisters. And it matters to God what's in our hearts when we pray. Unfortunately, the Lord refuses to answer many of our prayers because of what's in our hearts. So we need to be right before we pray. So let's do this right now, okay? Let's go to God.